Welcome back. This is Conversation 15. We're going to go into further detail about how Bob crafted cases and sting operations with Operation Gambat. One of these cases was a fictitious law that Bob crafted to be passed by the Illinois State Legislature at the hands of John DiArco Jr. Of course, it was all a setup, and Johnny DiArco Jr. fell right into the trap. Bob's going to detail how this went down. There's also a conversation about Fred Rohde and how he was ensnared in Operation Gambat. Somebody the feds were determined to bring down, and Bob had access to him and was able to set the trap as well. Enjoy Conversation 15. I left in November of 1989. There was not a single mob killing for almost nine years, Neil. Not a single one. Why? Because they could no longer be protected. We were in charge of the state's attorney's office. (laughs) We were in charge of everything. Police department, the sheriffs, the attorney general. See, Pat Marcy himself didn't talk to a lot of these people. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, about a lot of these politicians. The ones who gave him their orders and instructions was Alderman Rohde, because it looked perfectly normal for them to be over there at counselors and whatever and meeting them there. Even even with the Harry Alleman case, Johnny DiArco Sr. tells me Pat wants to talk to you. Pat had taken over the entire system. It would be done through Alderman Rohde, but Pat was the one that gave all the orders and all the instructions. Feds were trying to go after Rohde. After I had pulled that scam on Pat, indicating that I had this report, the grand jury was investigating, you know, the uh, only own murder. What the feds were going to do was they were going to buy a business up there in the Bridgeport area. They were going to buy a business, and then they were going to have, have Alderman Rohde put a, a no parking signs up there in front of it. And that was going to be their big case to get Alderman Rohde. And what had happened during that same time, my brother Bill was representing some people, some major builders there in Chicago. If you want to do anything in Chicago, any kind of a building or getting a zoning change, he needed his clients needed a zoning change. Uh, they were going to be selling condos, but it wasn't zoned for that. So you have to go to the alderman, and the alderman then will, you know, will then recommend it to the city council whether it should be done or not. And uh, he went in there to see him to get a zoning change. Rody and those people had never met any of my family. I never brought any of those people around any of the mobsters. Bill said when he went up there and he mentioned his name, Bill Cooley, and Rody has any relation to Bob Cooley, you know, that's my brother. And he said, have your brother talk to me. And Bill had no idea what was going on, but he, you know, he mentioned, you know, he said they have you talk to him. And I knew exactly what he meant. He's looking, he's going to be looking for a bribe. So that's when I contacted the feds. And, and as I said, they were going to spend hundreds of thousands on a business to build a case. I've got a situation now with uh, with Fred Rohde. Oh, wow, you know, great. So uh, when I when I wire up, you know, what I wanted to do is protect Bill, too. And uh, when I wired up with Rohde on the wire, I clearly said, I said, look, I said, you know, Bill, Bill has no idea what's going on. I said, he's a square. I said, you know, I'll be doing everything. I'll be, I said, in fact, I told him I got a hold of the builders and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to deal with them. And I indicated to them it's going to cost something to get it, to get it done. You know, we'll figure out what it is after I talk to him. I'll figure out if I can, you know, what I can get and whatever. Then I'll meet with you and we'll discuss it. Okay, great. So now, this was really bizarre. I come into counselors and I've got some money. The feds, you know, the feds gave me twenty five hundred, you know, to give them as a down payment. I come into counselors and I see Freddie at the table. I walk him into the back of the restaurant. There's a wall there. 
in the bar back in the restaurant, they had, you know, the open air kitchen. If you're walking from the counselor's row table, as you walk towards the back, there's a wall there. And then there's a like an area way, a doorway, an open, not a door, but it's like an open area where you walk right through and you go to the back. And if you go to the left, there's about four or five tables back there, but you can't see the front of it. You know, you can't see what's going on in the front of it. And that's why I walk in with Rody. And I'm sitting there with Rody uh, at the table. We had sat down no more than about three or four minutes. As we're sitting there, who comes walking through the areaway with Pat Marcy? And he sees me talking to Fred. As soon as he sees me, what's up? You know, what's up, Bob? Because, you know, I hadn't talked to him. You know, it was like a month or so before that when I had wired up on him with the only young uh, matter. And uh, he said, what's up? Fred, he looked like a deer caught in the headlights. Oh, well, I was going to tell you. I was going to tell you. And this is all on tape now. I was going to tell you about this. You know, oh, well, what is it? What's up? And so I'm talking now with Pat. I said, well, I've got these builders that want a zoning change. And, you know, oh, yeah, what, what's it all about? And, and I had no idea what, the, what, what it was all about. I'm just doing some gibberish. You know, well, they, they want to do some, they want to sell some condos and do some other things. And they might want to get a liquor license, you know, in, in the property. And he says, well, find out how big a project he is. And then we'll figure out what it is. He says, but these guys have to know everybody pays. This is Pat Marcy uh, into the tape recorder. And they know what the rules are here. They're major builders. Who are the builders? And I didn't know. And he says, because they all know what the rules are here. Then, and he says, well, we'll, we'll do all this. Then he said, we'll do all this through Fred. I'll tell Fred, find out what the numbers are and, and let Fred know. And then I'll tell you what it's going to cost. That's how we got Pat into this. But the only, Pat Marcy was the only one that I really started off wanting to get. But then as I even have Pat now, and uh, and I've got Johnny, as it turns out, I figure I've got to get the the other, the only other person who could have really probably taken control would have been Pat DeLeo. That was Johnny's brother-in-law. He was married to Johnny's sister. He was a corporation counsel. He was the head of the license court in Chicago. And I figured I've got to get him too. You know, he could have still survived with a lot of the people that, you know, he had been dealing with because uh, he, he was involved in the court system. And Pat was a very sharp streetwise guy. That was the one I, I had mentioned to you before. I think, you know, uh, you know, like to hang around with the mobsters. He used to come into my office and, until I told him, you know, to get out of there when they're there. Uh, he just liked being around them. He liked being around the bad guys and the mobsters. And most of them didn't like him at all because he was like a wise guy type. He was one that was, he was very vocal. He was very visible. They just, they just never cared for him. They never liked him at all. And so back to Marcy, when Gambat started, what did you think the timeline was to get Marcy? Did you, in your mind, think, oh, this will take a week, a month, a year, two years? What was the timeline by which you thought it would happen, and how long did it take to actually get him indicted? I did not have him for a good couple of years, probably a good year and a half. They just told me, I told you before, Belukas would not let me wire up on him. And it was it was about a year and a half. I was at home looking through some records for some reason. And that's when I found that, you know, that letter that had been sent to me, uh, you know, indicating that they're investigating. There's a, you know, there's a grand jury going on and they're investigating uh, the only own case. And that's when I got the idea, you know, because I had been told I couldn't wear a wire. That's when I got the idea. So I called Steve to start with, Steve Bowen. And I said, Pat Marcy is expecting to talk to me. I said, so 
see if you can get the okay now, you know, to have me wear a wire. And that was how the whole thing, and so DeLucas couldn't say no to that. Uh, so, you know, that's when I was told, okay, you have the okay to wear a wire on him. And that's how I, that's how I was able to go after him. When I first started and they wouldn't let me, I wasn't going to stop until I found a way. And that was the way. Those documents that you showed him were the gateway to his demise. That was the beginning of the end for him because that's when you were able to get the wire. And were those documents real or were those the documents you kind of like had an old date on them and, and he didn't even look at no, them? No, they, they had been sent to me three or four years before that. The only the only target I had initially was him. Then, as I said, you know, I didn't even think in terms of, you know, destroying the mob. I didn't initially, as I'm going along, I thought it would slow things down. It completely destroyed the mob's power. It took all their power away because they couldn't do the things that they were doing and knowing they could get away with it. Now, during the course of you wiring up, which was what, like three years time? Uh, yeah, a little over three. Uh, it was, I think it was March of uh, 86 until November of 89. Do you, during this window of time, I know there were some nerve-wracking moments, especially initially when you were wearing the wire. Do you become acclimated to wiring up and it just becomes part of your routine? I know it probably wasn't daily, but did you acclimate to this and it just you thought it would just go on for, for years? Or what, what did you see the end of the line coming when these indictments were coming down and were you emotionally prepared for that? Once I had agreed to wear the wire, I assumed I would get killed. I just assumed that because I told you before they all the contacts these people had, you know, when, when Nick the salesman was in witness protection, they found him and killed him. And I knew that. By now I realized how powerful they had become, not just in the city, but throughout the state. But how oh, they, they had contacts in the you know, in the justice department and they had contacts there obviously in witness protection. They had contacts everywhere. I never expected to survive it, Neil. And that's why I had asked Steve and I had asked the others. I said, look, if I wind up in the trunk, I said, if I wind up in the trunk, the one thing I ask you, bring bring forward the fact that I came in voluntarily and I wasn't doing this to save my own skin. Because I could just imagine the headlines. As they were when I surfaced, you know, he was in the dope. He was a, he was a, a drug addict and he was selling out all his friends, you know, and, and so forth. Every time I had to go someplace, as I said, I, I started carrying two guns rather than one. I assumed when I walk into it, when I would be walking into one of these basements or walking in, opening that door, and that was why I carried two guns because my, you know, the snub nose I had only had six bullets in it. I knew prior to that when they had killed Tony Spalatro, there were I had been told there were a number of people there in the basement beating him to death. Any time I walked into one of these rooms, as I opened the door. What had happened one time, this is towards the end of everything now, when I have Pat Marcy, you know, on, on tape, and I've got a case that I'm building up against uh, against Pat. I, I'm in counselor's row one day, and I'm supposed to make a payout. I saw Rocky and Police, who was a real, a real nasty monster from the Cicero crew. He was one of those that killed, you know, Hal Smith. I saw Rocky there. He was talking with Pat Marcy, you know, and now I got distracted. As I go back now and I see Pat in the front, I didn't see Rocky. I didn't know where Rocky, Rocky had went. Rocky wasn't there in the front of the restaurant. For the first time, I see Pat and he goes and he just motions me. Now, this is after they had found that wire there in Counselor's Row. And Pat motions me to follow him. 
And for the first time, they'd never done it before. He walks out of the restaurant and he walks over into the garage, parking garage next door. And he walks into it. There's a, I didn't even know there was a bathroom in there. And I, I never parked in there. So he walks into this bathroom, little shitty bathroom. Now I'm assuming, you know, that somebody's going to be waiting in there. And, you know, as I'm starting to follow him, I'm obviously a nervous wreck. Right away, I'm assuming that he's setting up a trap for me. And, and what I'm going to do, the moment I open that door, if somebody's there, I'm going to start shooting. I've got the one, I've got the one gun on the, on the left side, my snub nose. And as I open the door, I'm assuming it's going to be a trap. And here, Pat walks in. There's nobody else. It's a real small little room. And he walks over to the urinal and he starts urinating. And it's a filthy bathroom. At Counselor's Row, they got a beautiful bathroom downstairs. And he just starts urinating. I'm standing by the door and I've got my heels against the door. So in case now somebody's going to come crashing in, but nothing happens. When we walk back into counselors, we go, we walk downstairs and that's where I give them the money. I'm sure to this day that he was testing me. What was the test? To see if I would follow him. And if you didn't follow him. Then they would, then they would know for sure. And I think most people in my position would have just refused to go and, you know, would have, you know, found some reason not to, uh, but, you know, it was something I had to do. Were you under extreme stress in this window of time or did you, did you acclimate to it and just kind of adjusted uh, day by day? My fate was sealed. In fact, one of the reasons why, you know, I did what I did was I felt this was my mission. This is why, this is why I wasn't killed a number of times before. You know, I still had the Catholic upbringing that obviously came into effect. I should have been killed probably three or four times that I know of. You know, starting with the time when I got run over by that car, everybody thought I was dead. I should have been, I should have been killed. I wasn't. I should have been killed when Ricky Burley tried to set me up, you know, instead of paying me the money he owed me. And I knew of at least one or two other situations where, you know, where I probably should have been killed and I wasn't. So, you know, I felt this is my fate. Before I went and did anything on any, on any of these occasions, especially when I had to go and like meet Marco at the club and then go take a ride with him and whatever. I always said an act of contrition before I, you know, I had that scapular medal on that my mother had made for me when I was in, you know, in the hospital, you know, years before. It's a scapular medal that says, whoever dies wearing this will not see the fires of hell. And that's what the, that's what the Virgin Mary said. And I've got, it. in fact, it's on to this day. I never take it off. Every time before I walked into one of these rooms or whatever, and there were a number of those occasions, I miss, I'm assuming if somebody's there, I'm going to start shooting and save a bullet for myself. I didn't worry about dying, but I worried about being tortured. I always saw visions of butchie. And what they had done to him when they took a blowtorch to him. You know, I always worried about being tortured, but it was just, uh, it was just it's probably hard for people to believe it. So you're in this state of limbo, really, once you wire up. I mean, you're still trying to enjoy your life, I'm sure. You're, you didn't stop the gambling and the carousing and, and living the lifestyle, but there's got to be an end in sight. The gauntlet of death is hanging over you, as you've said, you thought you would be killed at any moment, but you're seeing the, the light at the end of the tunnel, right? I mean, this, this, you know that Marcy's going to get indicted. What's the thing that drives you the wedge for you where you got to leave town? Is it the news report? I kept trying to find new things to do so I could stay. I'm still living a fantastic life. You know, I've got money in my pocket. I'm partying and I'm playing. 
And I know the moment I leave, there was no longer a Bob Cooley. I'm just some, you know, just some moat wandering around wherever I go. There's no life out of me. My my law license is going to be gone. You know, I won't be a lawyer. I'll be a nobody. I, I know that. And so I don't want to go. I want to keep finding new things to do. The reason I had to go is because Belucas was going to resign and wanted to take credit for what I did. That's why I had to go. And that's why when I was told you're going to have to be going within a short period of time because Lucas is going to retire, is what they told me. We're going to have to close up shop. I'm furious again because this guy who'd done all he can to stop me is going to get credit for all that I've done. So that was why we had the card game and all the night before. And I was going to be on the plane when it was all set up to have like 50 agents out there passing out, you know, subpoenas to people and the rest of it. So like I said, once again, the son of a gun, you know, look what he did to me. He ended my life. My life ended the day I got in that plane and left. Uh, although I managed to have some pretty good times out there <laughs> after, a, after a period of time. I, I There's some real interesting stories that went along with that. You know, I told you about the one where I was working undercover there in Atlanta. At the same time, the tr- my trials are going on. At the same time, they've got a million dollars on my head with a different mob, you know, with the hillbilly mob. Marcy gets indicted. You're brought back in to testify. Before we would go to trial, I would meet with FBI agents. I'd meet with a U.S. attorney that would be handling it. I work with uh, four different U.S. attorneys, you know, five different U.S. attorneys. In Phoenix, we found a, a beautiful club out there in a huge resort. That's where we would meet, and we would go over the case. When I left town, first I was living up in Colorado in Littleton, and they sent me all these different tapes. That was a lot of work because somebody would go over the tapes. And a lot of my tapes took place in restaurants and bars and places like that with all the background noise. And they couldn't make out half the stuff that was being said. So I was supposed to, you know, go over them, uh, make the changes and whatever on the uh, on the tape. So there was a lot of work involved doing that because there, there were hundreds of tapes. We'd prepare my testimony. And I would fly back in and I would usually stay in hotels, different places up in Indiana is where I would normally, we would normally go. I would be brought in each day for the, you know, for the court. What was real interesting was in the Harry Oliman case. When they brought me in for that, I came into northern suburbs. When I came in, I was in like a a caravan. There were like one, two, three cars in front, and we had a couple of cars behind us. We had motorcycles, cops all around. What they had done was they had brought in like over 100 police and state police, and they stopped traffic. They stopped traffic on the expressway. In fact, when I went to the federal building, I always came in through the garage, never walked in the front door, came in through the FBI building. In the basement, they had a, a way to come. And there's another way where we would come in and not even through the driveway, and I'm not even sure where, we would come into some other garage, and there was a passageway, probably about a block and a half, two blocks, and we'd walk through like tunnels, come back into the into the federal building then. Once we get into the garage, uh, they'd take me up in the elevators that nobody else used, and I would go up to the courtroom, wherever the courtroom was. What would happen, too, is when they brought me in there, uh, when Jimmy Wagner was still the supervisor, Jimmy would have me go into his office, into his office, and all the agents are spread out in a huge, you know, outer area there with little cubicles for each of them. Everything was fantastic as long as he was there. Let's go back to the aftermath 
of the failed robbery in Geneva, Wisconsin. That was the end of Bob Cooley in Chicago. You know they're going to be charged, and you're heading to the airport. Tell us what happens directly thereafter. When I talked to Bobby, and when he told me that, we got the case, and, and we did. We wind up convicting all of them. But what happened now, it's about it's around 6 o'clock or so, and we head off to the Midway Airport. My two suitcases, and they hand me a uh, plane ticket. And I look at the plane ticket, flying into Naples. And when I get off the plane, and I'm told that some agent will meet me there, uh, find yourself a motel, and when you get there, uh, you know, give us a call and tell us where you are, and we'll have an agent meet you there. I'm on the plane and boy, talk about, you know, a head job. You know, so many things going through my head right now. You know, my life is over. I'm leaving, flying in there. I get off the plane and I look to the right of me and I see a sign, Marco Island over here. This is where they're sending me. Marco and those people have been buying property in Marco Island for years. They're, they're out there all the time. And they're in Hollywood, Florida, and they're also up in that area. What the hell, I'm thinking. So I get into a cab. I go to a motel and I turn the TV on. And when I turn the TV on, it's on Channel 9. And I see, you know, Robert Cooley was exposed as a as an informant. And it turns out that he apparently was caught doing drugs or selling drugs. And, and he's been working with the government for a period of time, basically to save his own skin. And when I see that, I'm furious because just a couple of days before, I had gotten the family together and just told him, I'll be leaving Chicago. I've got to go somewhere. I'll be gone for a while. And I have my mother there. I've always been, I always spent a lot of time with her and was real close to her. And I'm thinking she's at the Carmelite. She lives now in the Carmelite, you know, old people's home. And all these people, you know, wow, she's got a son who's a lawyer and all the rest of it. All these people are going to see that. And she's going to see that. And I'm furious. And I called John Drummond. Uh, I had his home number. For those who don't know, John Drummond was the best investigative uh, news reporter in Chicago for crime. I called him at home, and I said, I'll give you a call later. I said, and just as, I, just as I'm talking on the phone, the agent knocking on the door. So I said, John, I'll give you a call later. If not today, I'll give you a call in the morning, and I'll, I'll tell you the, the whole story. In other words, that I came on my own and, and all the rest of it. He goes on the newscast and he and he makes a comment. I was just contacted by you know by Bob Cooley, and uh, and he's going to recontact me and and give me the story or whatever. Then I get a call from Anton Belukas. That's the first time I hear from him again since you know since I walked out of the hotel room, which was years before. You know, listen, uh, you know, Mister Cooley, you know, please. He said, you know, you you really can't talk to anybody. You can't, you know, you. You can't say anything. And I said, but they're, they're totally destroying me out there. I said, my mother's watching this stuff. I said, my family's watching this stuff. And they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to have to listen to this. Oh, no, no. We'll get that all straightened out. But please, if you, if you say something that might adversely affect the cases. So I didn't, so I didn't call John back. <laughs> so, so now, as I said, I'm, I'm in a very interesting frame of mind also. Now the, the agent comes in and we're sitting there. And by now it's about, it seemed like 15 minutes. By now it's, it's dark outside already. I had probably been there for about six, seven hours. And it seemed like I'd been there for 20 minutes. And I'm talking with the agent. We decide we're going to go out to dinner. And I tell him too, I said, you know, my God, I said, you know, Marco Island. I said, you know, this is where all the mob people are. They're, they're building, buying properties and they spend time all around here. 
we go out to his car. <laughs> when we get out to his car, first he walks back into the trunk and I'm standing next to him. And he takes off his gun and he puts his gun in the trunk and closes it. I said, what the hell are you doing? He says, I never like to wear my gun when I'm drinking. <laughs> That's what he said. I don't like to wear my gun when I'm drinking. I said, then give me the fucking gun. You, what do you mean you don't want to wear the gun? You're supposed to be my protection here. I said, and then he puts his gun back on. You know, while I'm there, in fact, I'm, I'm talking with him. He was a nice enough guy, a real nice guy. You know, while we're there, you know, the next day he comes back over and he says, well, he says, uh, you know, what, what are you going to do? I said, well, I guess I got to figure on something. He says, where do you want to go? And I said, you know, I don't know. You know, I'm trying to think of it. But, you know, as we're talking, he mentioned he had gone to school at Colorado State University. And uh, he says, have you thought about coming to an area like Denver? And uh, I said, well, I used to go skiing up there, but, you know, didn't meet that many people and and, uh, and not a lot. I said, you know, maybe that's a good idea. Yeah, okay, let's go to let's go to Denver. And that's how I wound up going to Denver. And, and the way there, we stopped in Iowa on the way there, and they were going to get my name changed. We flew into Iowa, Iowa, and we went to a court and a courthouse, and we talked with the judge there. And they gave me they they changed my name. At that time, the FBI themselves gave me a new social security number. I don't know how they I don't know how they did it or what they did, but they gave me a they gave me a new number, so I got a new name and a new number. And when we got to Denver, the same agent introduced me to a banker there who he was a friend with, and they gave me a credit card there under the new name and the rest of it to you know to build up my credit. Uh, we we traveled around, looked at a few places, and we wound up in Littleton. Steve Bowen, I think, came out there then. The very next day, Steve Bowen flew out there. As I told you before, I had I had some I had a good amount of cash with me, which I didn't bother telling these people. Uh, but I had uh, I had taken a, a very nice sum of money with me, so that wasn't going to be a problem. The very first night there, okay, I'm in, I'm in my new apartment. It was about maybe a couple of days after I'd first arrived there, and uh, I'm in my new place, and it's about maybe one two o'clock in the morning. I'm in the front room watching TV because I'm just not tired. Uh, again, I got a lot of things going through my head. And there's a pounding on the door. Bang, bang. What the fuck? Now, I don't have a gun yet. I went out and got I went about one the next morning. But there's a pounding on the door. And at first, you know, what the hell? Did they find me? And I'm looking around. You know, I, I've got nothing to protect myself. Absolutely. I'm looking around to see if I can something can be used as a weapon. But, you know, but there's absolutely nothing there. I had like a statue or something, a little, a little metal thing. I grab that and I go by the front door and I, and I look through the top part of the window and here's this guy out there and it looks like he's got a shotgun in his hand. And holy fuck. Then I hear, you know, maintenance, maintenance, you know, there's a, there's a frozen pipe somewhere. We're trying to check it out. And I see a second person standing there with him. It was so cold that the pipes had frozen there. He comes in, and the guy winds up putting a hole in the wall there trying to see if that's where the pipes were frozen. <laughs> the next day, I went over to a hardware store. And uh, at that time, you just walk in there, and you, you, I had a Colorado driver. They had already gotten me a Colorado driver's license. I go to this place, and I walk in there, and you know, I want to buy a gun. I bought a 9 millimeter. 
On that day, they had 50 agents going out serving subpoenas to people all around Chicago and Cook County. And the next day, I talked to Jimmy Wagner. And he says, he said, Bob, the funniest thing. And I said, what's that? And he said, I was going to serve Johnny DiArco, uh, you know, his, uh, the warrant uh, and the subpoena. He says, I'm over in the uh, Daily Center. As I'm walking through there, I see Johnny in the phone booth. Now, they had phone booths there at that time. You know, not, you know, not a phone on the wall. They had a regular phone booth. He said, as I'm walking towards him, I see him suddenly just fall down to the ground. He's on the phone. He obviously called his office. Any messages? And was told that somebody who just two days before is, uh, you know, is making a payoff to him to fix a case in the Senate. He fell, he fell, he fell straight down. <laughs> he goes over and serves him, and he's he's laying down there in the uh, phone booth. Has there ever been a sting operation around a politician fixing a bill, or rather, enacting a law? Based on a bribe, it was it. That's got to be a first. I'm probably no doubt. In fact, I'll tell you, I'll, you know, I'll tell you what the thing was, and it was so silly. In fact, I've got, you know, I, I saw some of the tapes afterwards. They just told me, you know, they gave me an idea to pass a law. I don't even remember exactly how I I came about thinking about it, but talked a bit about what kind of a law we're going to have them pass. We decided that a, a travel agency, I'm, I'm supposedly connected with some people that have travel agencies all around the country and what they want to be able to sell insurance, travel insurance. The only ones who could sell any kind of insurance like that were insurance agencies, that they wanted a special exemption uh, so they could sell you know, when they're selling big packages, they could also sell travel insurance. When I'm talking to John, I, the way the way it happens is I have I have pretty much an idea what we're going to do, but you know nothing is really specific. So you know when I'm talking to John, he's asked, he starts. To, I didn't expect him to ask questions, uh, but he did. So he said, "What exactly kind of insurance do they want to sell? What they want?" I said, "Is they want to have business interruption insurance? Uh, what, what is that?" And I said, "Well, um, well." Somebody's supposed to be flying out to California because they've got a big business meeting. You know, say the car breaks down or they miss the plane and they miss that meeting. If you take out this travel insurance, you know, they'll, they'll make some kind of a payoff to you for what you lost there. And, and, I, and I said, and another thing, too, was, you know, accident insurance. And what I'm meaning is, you know, if you're on the way to the airport or when you're leaving the airport, if you have an accident, that could be covered by this insurance and, uh, and, and, and a couple of other things. And, <laughs> and, and when Johnny's responding to me, and this is when I got the wire run, he says, you know, if they have accident insurance, but yeah, you mean if the two planes hit each other? <laughs> but, but Was no, he joking? No, he, he, he was not joking. No, so many, there were so many things where they would laugh when they would listen to these tapes with Johnny. He's so, so unbelievably naive in, in so many ways and half listening half the time and, uh, you know, and whatever. But what I said was, I said, we need to make sure that, you know, we get the law passed. And, oh, not a problem. I'll, you know, I can do that. I said, uh, you know, do you need me to come down to Springfield? And he says, no. He said, no, Bob, but you know what you want? Just tell me what you want and we'll get it done. And I said, you know, are you sure these guys will go? If I say they'll do it, they'll do it. I had already been there with him in Springfield. So he knew that I knew too. When I, I told you when we became partners and, and he invited me to come down there with him, I went down there probably about three or four times 
and everybody catered to Johnny. How did the payoff work? Did you give him money up front initially, or it was just a... No, I, we, first, I asked what it would cost, and, and we come up with, he comes up with a figure of 50000 And so, okay, fine. And uh, you know what I did was I paid him five thousand. You know I'll meet you in a couple of days. I said, well, let me let me talk. You know, let me talk to them first, and I'm sure it'll be okay. But let me talk to them first, and and uh, and I made the first payment of five thousand to him. Then I made a second. I met him again after he was supposed to make contact with these people. I said, well, make contact and make certain, John, because he was going back to Springfield in a day or two. And uh, you know when he and when he came back, I said. Can it be done? He said, well, you, you got to understand something, too. He was the chairman of the insurance committee down there. That was his position. He was the most powerful one down there anyhow. Anything he wanted or asked for, they would do. And because I asked him, too, you know, now will the 50000 you know, cover cover anybody and everybody? He said, yes, not a problem. Uh, but knowing Johnny, uh, he wouldn't have given anybody else anything. It would have all gone right into his pocket. We convicted him on that. Did he plead or did he? No, he went to trial first on the uh, on the first case. He went to trial and he got convicted. In fact, the first thing we tried him on, I'm sure, was the uh, was the Senate. And we convicted him on that. And now and I demanded they go after him on the other. I mean, I was furious at him. What I didn't tell you when I left town, I told you one of the people who was my closest friend there was Bobby Whitebloom. He was the hearing officer, head hearing officer at the secretary of state's office would do anything in the world for me. Uh, Bobby had no life except me. The only life Bobby had was me. He would never go anywhere. He would work, 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 work. He had his own private practice where he represented a lot of people on, on uh, license problems and all. The only time he would go out would be on Saturday nights with me. Where are you going? I'm going to Greek town. Can I meet you there? He never dated until he met me. Then he would start, uh, he would start dating. He would meet some, he would start meeting girls through my dinners and the rest of it. The only time he would go out would be Saturday and he'd come out with us. In fact, a lot of times he, he started doing the same thing I did too. I used to always carry a lot of money in my top shirt pocket, a big stack of bills, you know, you know, maybe four or five, six thousand. He started doing the same thing all the time. Uh, when I left town, never, obviously never told him, you know, or anybody what I was doing. But I thought I'd give him a call. You know, I, I just thought, you know, give him a call because I never said to Bobby, so goodbye, you know, Bobby. And when I call, he's crying. When he hears my voice, he's crying. You know, you're gone. You know, what's what's going on? You know, wow, wow. I said, well, where are you? And, and Where are you? And uh, and I said, you know, it's best you don't know. He said, no. He said, you know, I, I'd love to come out and see you. You know, I'd love to come out and see you, he said. And uh now, here's a guy who's apparently he's never taken a vacation or anything. So anyhow, I agree to, you know, and he, and he comes out. He, and he comes out there about a week or so later. And uh, when he comes out, he brings me 20000 He says, I thought you could maybe use this. He said, I, you know, and whatever. And he said, you know, you know, and he stayed for about a week and, you know, crying all the time because, you know, you're gone now and whatever. And, uh, you know, anyhow, I said, you know, maybe in another month or two, you, you, you come out again. And we had a real good time there. You know, we had a real good time there. And he goes back, he goes back home. And I gave him my, I gave him my, uh, I had a, a SkyTel number and I gave him my number. And, uh, he's back home and he calls me the next day and he's scared stiff. You know, Bobby, what's the matter? He says, Johnny DiArco came to see me. And he wants to know where you are. He said, he knows. He said, 
I know you know where he is. You know, you, you, when you left, you must have gone to see him. And we want to know where he is or else. And I was livid. I was livid. Uh, I called Steve back in Chicago, and I guess they uh, they paid Johnny a visit about three weeks later. And I talked to I talked to Bobby a couple of times. About three weeks later, I talked to Bobby, and he had a heart attack. He just had a heart attack. And uh, and and I'm talking to him, and he says I'm in the hospital. He says I'm in the hospital. He said, and you know, and he said I think it's, you know, they, they're they're going to do surgery. They're going to operate, but uh, they, they think it's bad. I said, Bobby, you know, you're with good doctors. He was at Northwestern. I said, you're with good doctors, and everything will be fine. He never uh, never woke up from the surgery. He died of a heart attack. And, uh, and as I said, there's no doubt in my mind that. That weasel Johnny is the one that caused that, and that was why, and, and that was why you know I demanded they you know they you know they do something on the on the second case because he only got like about three years on the first one, and uh, you know so they charged him with that. They let him off anyhow, pleading guilty, and and uh, I don't think he did any extra time anyhow. After that, Johnny Diarco Jr. just kind of retires to Florida, and, and- it, it wasn't by retiring his dad. In fact, you know, I don't know how much money he got. His dad obviously had probably millions. His dad, you know, treated me like a son, like the son he wishes he had, and uh, was real coldish, real, real coldish towards Junior. Uh, I'm just probably disgusted with the fact that, you know, the kid never did anything other than they made him a son or they made him this and they made him that. But uh, I told you before how originally, you know, he had contacted me. He saw me and wanted me to teach his son how to practice law. But Johnny Sr., when he had problems down there in Florida, he called me. I was contacted by, this is about, you know, 15 years ago or so now, about maybe five or six years after, uh, you know, after I, you know, finished with my cases. This girl con made contact with me through another friend of mine who was a friend of hers. She was a lobbyist and she was in real trouble. And uh, she called me and uh, I talked to her a few times and I helped get her out of it. I told her what she could and couldn't do. And basically got her out of it. And uh, she became like a, a real close friend. When I'm talking to her, she told me that Maggie, you know, Maggie was a good friend of hers. And Maggie had just come up, you know, had just come up to visit with her. And uh, Maggie's looking, you know, Maggie's looking to get some kind of a job because they're broke. And I said, what's Johnny doing? And she said, he's working in a hotel with Richie. He owned a bank, a big bank, and he was with an insurance company. They owned an insurance company. He was working, Johnny was working as a desk clerk. He was working, answering the phones in his hotel down there in Hollywood. And I'm sure they lived in, in one of Dad's, Dad's two houses. He had those two houses up there right, right alongside the beach where all the mobs, all the mob guys from all around the country used to meet. And I'm sure Johnny, Johnny got that. That's why he moved to Florida. You know, who knows how much he was left, but uh, it was all gone. He, uh, you know, he pissed it all away. That concludes Conversation 15. Stay connected. Make sure you're following us. There's a few more episodes left. Thank you again for listening.